Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, everyone. Congratulations. We all made it to the 200th episode of the Theater Podcast. Can you believe this? Whether this is your first episode or your 200th, truly thank you for listening. This podcast would still not be here 200 episodes later without your support. It started out and still is a massive labor of love. And on my side, real quick, I want to acknowledge that the podcast probably wouldn't have gotten started without the help of original producer Jillian Hockman, my wonderful friend and tech guru Matthew Hendershot, and my number one listener and also amazingly wonderful friend Byron Jennings, who never fails to text me his always honest thoughts about the latest episode. And this, episode 200, is an episode, of course, for the history books. To celebrate this milestone, we have none other than Broadway royalty, Patty Lapone. I feel like I came out of the interview kind of transformed. Not being able to have an extended chat with her before this interview, I I knew very little about her uh, on a personal level other than what was reported online. And what I learned very quickly is that she's just as sensitive and amazingly honest as the rest of us in this business. And she truly cares about performing as an art. And and she gets so emotionally invested in the audience. That's why she cares so much about people texting and and people getting uh, being distracted. It's the way she talks about it is is just heartwarming. And she is just a truly wonderful woman. I hope you can learn a thing or two about Patty after listening to this episode as well. I have monologued long enough. So here we go. Without further ado, everyone, please enjoy this episode with Patty Lapone. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, everyone, strap yourselves in. Combined across the Emmys, Grammy, Olivier, and Tony Awards, she has 14 nominations, resulting in six wins. You've, of course, seen her on stage in one of her 27 Broadway credits, but she also has a long and illustrious career across TV and film, with credits including some of my favorites, Driving Miss Daisy, Frasier, Will and Grace, Ugly Betty, 30 Rock, Glee, American Horror Story, Penny Dreadful, and of course, Life Goes On. She's a voiceover artist, a cabaret performer, a mom, and performs regularly with the New York Philharmonic, all of which mean you can find her singing across 22 albums. She can now be seen on Broadway in the revival of Company. And side note, Trivia was the first American to ever win an Olivier Award. And she has been inducted into the American Theatre Hall of Fame. Patty Lapone, oh my God, welcome to the 200th episode of the Theater Podcast. Well, congratulations to you. <laughs> I can't believe, I. can you send me that list? Sure. Of credits? I had no idea. You you didn't know, like, I was going to ask about this, actually, to, to kick this off, because as somebody who is constantly, uh, speaking for myself, as somebody who is constantly trying to move forward, look forward, become better, become better, 
I have to constantly remind myself to turn around and look and where where I've came, what I've come from, what um, kind of what's behind me, and. I mean, you've got like I assume a shelf of all these awards, and do you do you count them? Do you <laughs> like how do you keep track of what you've done? I I I was actually surprised to hear what I what I've done. <laughs> Not, I mean, I know that I've done a lot because I've been in the business for such a long time, but that's impressive, <laughs> right? That's a, Right. That that is it's really impressive. And I and I I wonder, um, you know, being being in the business for as long as you have, and you were one of the uh you were one of the thirty-six uh original young actors chosen for the very first class of Juilliard's school of drama, their drama division, right? So mm-hmm. like you've been sort of at the forefront of this huge theater transformation from the very beginning. So looking back, of course. Where you are now, and I, we rattled off lots of awards, but I wonder, like people say, you know, they joke, we do it for the awards, but people don't really do it for the awards because ironically, with all these awards, it was what, 28 years between your two Tony wins, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. like if you judge it on Tony wins, okay, most people never get a Tony win, but when you look back at all of this, at this career that you've put forth, did you ever think starting out that you would be where you are now? And I guess, where do you think you are now? That's a, that's yes, a perception that's question. question. Yeah. yeah, that's the question. Um, I think success in this business is longevity. Um, it's not awards, it's longevity. If, if you can uh, continue to be hired, I suppose, um, after all this time. I've been an equity member for 50 years. Wow. And I'm shocked at that. And my, when I graduated from Juilliard, John Hausman handed my class an equity card and a seat on a bus, and we mm. went out on the road. And that was 1972. And I was figuring it out uh, this year. And I, I went, holy God, 50 years in equity. Do they send you a pen or a, a, a watch? <laughs> oh, no, they just want more money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's my problem with equity these days. <laughs> you know, when we when we trained at school, I went into Juilliard um, thinking that I would end up on the Broadway musical stage. And as I um, studied at school, and believe me, I was not the best student. I was one of the worst students because really? it was the seventies, baby, and there were there was partying to have, how you know, partying to happen. Um, no, really, it was it was New York in the seventies, which was a dangerous and very creative and fun time. Mm-hmm. And there were better things to do than thirteen hours a day at Juilliard. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I really wasn't a very good student at school. And I wish that's one thing is one one regret. I wish I was a better student in the technical department um, because basically that's all we had at Juilliard. We we did not have acting teachers until maybe our third year i mean they called them acting teachers but it was so varied and confusing but the technique the technical department was so strong in voice and movement and uh, speech and that was where they lost me (laughs) it's like you know let me tell you one story about edith skinner who was infamous and very famous and infamous and she was our speech teacher and she had introduced us to the diphthongs this was my first year of juilliard 
And we were at International House because the original Juilliard School of Music was too small to house the drama division. So all of the 36 actors plus our teachers were housed in International House. And we would, you know, take classes in hallways in the, the, I don't know what you'd call it. It was a stage, but anyway, we were in some room that looked like a library. It's a collection of risers. No, but there was a stage. It was interesting. There was a stage. We we would rehearse on the floor, Mm. but there was a stage. But so his class was in what looked like a library. Uh, There were no books, but it was just an open room that could have been a library. And she had introduced us to the diphthongs. And after we had met the last diphthong, she sailed over to the windows and drew back the curtain and said, well, we are out of the forest. We are sailing on the Hudson River. Sis, boom, bah. (laughs) I thought, I'm in school with a bunch of nuts. <laughs> so so the, the, the technical department was sort of, uh, you know, I kind of tolerated it, and I should have actually listened clo- more closely. Um, but 50 years doing what I do uh, is an achievement, whether there's awards or not. It's like, oh, my God, I've been on stage. I've been doing what I knew I would do at four years old for 50 years, a professional for 50 years. That's, that's an accomplishment. To that's still, an accomplishment. Yeah. To right still there. be doing it, to still be enjoying it. So at four years old, how did you know that this is what you wanted to do? I fell in love with the audience. Um, it was just something and I can see this moment as if it was yesterday. Um, I was tap dancing downstage, right? And I thought everybody in the audience was looking at me. Meantime, there was a whole line of kids, but I thought they were all looking at me. And and there was something magical about an audience. And of course, I knew they were our parents, but there was something magical, uh, magical about seeing the joy on their faces. And I, I thought, okay, this is a really safe place to be. And this is a fun place to be. If I can look out and see people smiling, why not? I love that that it was the audience that felt that that got you to fall in love with theater because there's so there's so much of that that other people um, maybe they maybe they don't consciously realize that that's what it is. But it's uh, people ask me um, what did I miss when when COVID was shut down? What am I what am I looking forward to the most? Uh, when when theater comes back. And for me, as an audience member, it's going on this shared journey with a room full of strangers and feeling emotion that I don't normally get to feel. It's it's peeling back the layers and exploring more of myself. And I, I feel like on the flip side, right, when you're standing on stage, the, the God, chemically serotonin, dopamine, whatever's going on released in your brain that makes you feel so happy to be able to guide this room of strangers on this journey for you to recognize that at four years old, I think is, is absolutely incredible. I was a precocious kid getting in trouble a lot, but I did realize that very early on. I did. (laughs) My mother used to, you know, troop me out when we had guests to do my Marilyn Monroe imitation, go figure how (laughs) I even knew who Marilyn Monroe was at three years old, but I did. And I would do, you know, they thought that was really cute. And there's actually my mother and my father were not, my mother couldn't sing 
my dad was a principal. He was he was a, an educator. Uh, and my mother was a housewife. Um, there was no show business link in my immediate family, but there was um, showboating. I suppose I guess you could call it showboating. And my mother would troop me out, and I would do this Marilyn Monroe imitation where I would drop a shirt off of my shoulder and expose my shoulder. And then I would do something with my lips. And that was my Marilyn Monroe imitation. And yeah, it was pretty crazy. That <laughs> I love that though. Uh, you, you are, if I'm remembering correctly, grew up on the North shore of long Island and come from a big, uh, or an Italian family. Is it a big family? Mm-hmm. Yes. And it was a big family until my mother and father got divorced. And then it was a very acrimonious divorce. And then my mom sort of forbade us to see the Lapone side of the family, which is, you know, uh, she was a, a woman scorned and it was unnecessary. But I don't see any of my uh, Lapone relatives. And there's very few Patty relatives. So it's, you know, it's uh, I'm not I'm not without a family, actually, just my immediate Aww. family. Well, that, that's what I was yeah. asking if it was a big family because, uh, uh, like the the a lot of kids who sort of get lost in the shuffle of a big family find a home on stage because of of the audience looking and the audience attention that that they're getting. So I wondered if that had anything to do with um, with you falling into the path that you you ultimately chose, right? No, it chose me. Mm. It chose me. You know, it's and, and uh, the the family when the Lupones and the Patties got together were loud, um, but that nobody got lost. I don't think. I mean, you know, the kids were relegated to the kids' table, and the kids went off and did their own thing when the adults were drinking and doing their thing. But no, at um, um, at four years old, it chose me, and I recognize that. <clears throat> It, it's uh, you said your mother was a, a a woman scorn that reminds me just of of Mama Rose of course Gypsy um, one of is your second Tony win and and one of the the roles that you're known for the most and I've I've heard um, bits and pieces of this story over the years but like you did not want to play Mama Rose at all right like that was another thing where the role came to you over and over and over again. Yeah, I didn't understand it. I did. I did it in high school. We had this. Um, um, when I was going to school, and I think it's kind of still true. Um, well, let me start from the beginning. We have a very. We had a very strong music department from elementary school through high school. I, um, in the third grade, we were marched into the um, Ocean Avenue Elementary School, and there were two posters. Uh, on on tripods um, on the stage. I mean, they were huge. And the third grade was told to choose an instrument because it was an integral part of our education. And so I wanted to play the harp, but we had no harp. And Kathy McCusker, who was across the aisle from me, said cello. <laughs> so I picked the cello. But we started to learn how to read music and play an instrument in the third grade, nice. uh, which was an yeah, it was incredible. And um, that music influence um, continued through high school um, with really ex- astonishing teachers. And that was my pretty much my thrust, my focus and my desire from elementary school through high school was the music department. 
so there were a bunch of kids that that just gravitated to the music department in junior high and high school. We were not the um, popular kids. We were not the sports crowd. Uh, the cheerleaders. I actually I was a cheerleader and got thrown off the cheerleading squad. But I was a cheerleader. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, because I would, yeah, you, just, somebody, you wouldn't do anything. Yeah, I was smoking in the bathroom at an away game, and one of the <laughs> cheerleaders caught me and told the English teacher in office team I went. Um, I was kind of a, you know, I was very rebellious in school, but um, there were those kids that 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 um, gravitated and were passionate about music. When the school year was over, three of them continued this desire and formed the patio players and would put on great big Broadway musicals on Kathy Sheldon's patio. I joined them. And one of the musicals we did was Gypsy. And I played Louise. And I remember Kathy Sheldon and the dressing room scene in the second act. And she's yelling at me. And I'm going, what the hell is she talking about? I, I mean, I really didn't understand it because I didn't. I didn't understand the play. It was complicated. It was something that was a my, my little pea brain couldn't compute. And I remember looking at Kathy going, oh, I hate this woman. <laughs> <laughs> so Madame Rose was not, well, if you want to play Ado Annie and you don't think about Madame Rose, I wanted to play the second bananas because they were the ones that got the laughs yeah. and they were the better parts. So you don't think about Madame Rose if Ado Annie is your desire. Um, so, <laughs> so, but a lot of people said to me, you should play Madame Rose. And there's a long story about Arthur and me. Arthur offered me a play, uh, Jolson Sings Again. I had just come back from Sunset Boulevard and was just so emotionally eviscerated. And Robert Fox and I think Scott Rudin came up to my house to try to convince me to do this play. I read it and I thought, oh my God, everybody's just yelling at each other. And it was Arthur's take on, uh, I believe, Jerome Robbins uh, singing to the House Un-American Activities Committee. And I thought, mm, no, this is not, I just need to heal. So I turned it down. Dan Sullivan was directing and it was going to Seattle Rep. And I just went, I can't do this. It showed up again. And I turned it down and I was shooting a film. I was shooting David Mamet's heist in Montreal. And I got a telephone call from Arthur who just proceeded to do what he was famous for. I was speechless. I was destroyed, emotionally destroyed. I hung up the, I was crying, hung up the phone and I went, what was that? Because I turned it down. He said, I sunk his play, blah, blah, blah. And then I found out that I was banned from his work. I thought, oh, why does, why do these things happen to me? Just because I turned down the play. Well, and then when Wells Kaufman of the Ravinia Festival wanted to do Gypsy, I said, you're not going to be able to get the rights because... I'm banned from Arthur's work. He said, you're banned from first-class productions, but not concerts. And I went, oh, okay. And so I did it in Ravinia, and there was enough buzz around it that um, we then, there was talk about bringing it to Broadway, and I had to make the phone call to Arthur. This is a believe when I was doing Sweeney. And something had shifted in him, and we proceeded. And then when I played it, I understood why people thought I should. 
it is a, a monster part. I mean, I remember when Boyd and I would come off stage in the first 20 minutes after the grand saver thing seemed exhausted mm-hmm. and breathless. And I thought, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. I mean, it's the energy that is required. It's not even the singing. It's the physical energy that is required to play that role is intense. But I got it. I got it's, it, 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 it. It offers the actor playing it every possible emotional feeling, for lack of a better word. I mean, I would play it again if somebody asked me. I would play that again. We're going to take a short break. Stay tuned for more of the episode. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So that was that was Tony number two, and Tony number one was Evita, and both of those not comedic roles. But it sounds like it sounds like you want like in in your career in your life, are you more drawn to the comedic? Like you said, you wanted to play second banana, but now looking back, uh, it it seems to me like everybody wants you for this powerhouse voice. And with a little bit of comedy on the side versus the other way around, or how do you, how do you feel from your perspective? I'd like to know. <laughs> um, <laughs> my friend when asked my friends, my friend Jeff Richmond asked me, "How come you always get? Well, how come you're always cast as first ladies?" And I went, "Yeah, I don't know. That's the question <laughs> you got to ask those people." Um, none of those roles were roles I desired. None of those roles I went after. Um, <clears throat> I don't. I don't. I don't know. I think um, they must be my capacity. I do tend to want to make people laugh, but I'm also a melancholy baby. I'm the glass half empty as opposed Mm. to the glass half full. Always my entire life. I've been the melancholy baby. And so, and in school I was cast in those roles and the, the tragic, the the tragic roles uh, as well as the comedic roles. But so I was lucky that all of that was developed at school and, um, but I will squeeze a laugh <laughs> out of anything. I remember being, you know, patting myself on the back when I was able to squeeze a laugh out of the first act of Evita. <laughs> I thought, oh my God, these people hate me. I got to make them laugh. I got to figure out how to make them laugh. And I did in the wheel, Yule. Um, and I would come off stage going, yes, yes, I made a laugh. Um, there's something about laughter that is a release for an audience mm-hmm. and it just brings so much joy in a building. I remember leaving with the audience. They had no idea who I was because I was commuting up to Connecticut and driving myself when I did anything goes and I would leave with the audience. I never took off my makeup, just got out of the red wig, threw on clothes and went with the audience down into the Lincoln center parking lot. <laughs> and I would listen to the audience and I would listen to them retell that old chestnut and laugh all over again. And every time we heard laughter during anything goes, it just filled my heart 
you know, there's just something about that release. We can all cry these days at the drop of a hat about everything that's going on. But to hear laughter these days, oh my God, I could cry just hearing the laugh. Yeah, there's always there's always something wrong. And I wonder, I wonder too, you you had just said growing up you're always the ha- the glass half empty person. I wonder if that's how or why you're more attracted to the comedy and why you love comedy more because it internalizes internal internally for you it's lifting you up. It's moving you forward, right? Yes. I think you're absolutely right. And I have black humor. There is nothing off limits. <laughs> well, do, do you um I I I guess like you've you've sort of got this uh I guess for people who don't really know you and and I even in like the t- short time you and I have just been talking right now like you're a very sensitive person you're a very real person and I think you're very you're incredibly wonderful and but, oh, what, pe- and people people love to talk about um the the like look at she grabbed a phone she's talking about the audience she's doing like I understand why you get upset with the audience because I I was at American Utopia last night and someone next to me had their phone out and I almost smacked it out of their hand. And mm. something you said at the very beginning of why at four years old you wanted to get in the theater was because of the audience. You fell in love with the audience. And now when the audience starts to detach, I understand why that frustrates you so much. But my question through all of this is, I, I guess, um, do, do you... Do you just not, do you say what's on your mind? Do you care about having a filter or is it just sort of like, I, I have to say what's what's inside. I have to get inside out so that I feel good about myself. If it's good, if it's bad. And just like people like talking about comedy versus crying, people will, the news will hold on to someone doing something controversial versus the everyday niceties that somebody is. Right. I, you know, I just, I, I wish I did have a filter. Sometimes because they really do <laughs> blather on. Um, um, it's just, I don't know. I'm, I'm an emotional creature I, and I don't have a, I wish I had developed a, a filter. I wish I had a more, um, uh, let me see if I can, it, it, I wish my thoughts were more organized in my head so that when I did say something, the impact had a different effect. Sometimes it's just the, you know, the Italian blast. <laughs> It's just an emotional reaction. It really is. It's an emotional reaction. And I do care what people think. And I do, like I said, I do wish that I was able to express myself in a way that had a better impact. Because I think sometimes I do myself damage by just allowing the Italianism to, to fly out of my mouth. But you know what? There's nothing I can do now. <laughs> sort of who I am. Well, it's it's been it's been out there. Everything's been out there. Everything about you has been out there for so long, and people love talking about it. And and I I well, I guess okay. So before I get into what I want to get into, um, with so many people now, you've been in this business for fifty or been part of Equity for fifty years, been doing this for so long, so many awards. Like everybody wants to to the the I guess the status you have achieved. Everybody wants to be your friend. Everybody wants to know you. So how do you choose? The people, how do you know when people are being authentic and how do you know, or how do you choose to spend your time with people that you know are real? How do you know that they are real and not just trying to, you know, uh, be next to what they perceive as stardom? 
Well, first of all, everybody doesn't want to know me and doesn't want to be my friend. <laughs> really? No, it's so positive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, no, um, no. Um, as a matter of fact, someone came to the show the other night, and I know this person, and um, they didn't bother to get in touch with me that they were coming, or I haven't heard from them since. So, and I thought, okay, you know what? I went backstage to see you. I compliment you. I support you. I pay respect to you. What's the deal? <laughs> you know, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a difficult business. It is a competitive business. And the, the friends that I have, the majority of them are friends that I've had for my life. For the, mm. And most of my friends are outside of the business. And I have a few select friends that are in the business. And it's not about the business as to why they are my friends. They're just good people. I think I developed a, I think I have a Sicilian witch aspect to my life. And I can, <laughs> I, 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 I do, I, I really do. And I, I, I can judge character. I'm not always right, but I, I can smell fraudulence and I can actually, I can, it, I, I, I feel it. I, I sense it. And, I, I don't let people get close to me that, that I know are only in it for a, an ulterior motive. Mm -hmm. And actually, it's too late to make friends, even though I, I can and I will um, continue to make friends. But the, like I said, the, the friends I have are the kids I grew up with and the kids that I knew or the people, kids, <laughs> um, people, 30 years, 30 to, you know, from my childhood in, in Northport through my school years to people that there's just a like-mindedness no bullshit you feel it yeah you totally feel it and <laughs> and and because theater and show business isn't the thrust of my life it is what i do it is not who i am and my life is more important than show business so it that helps balance who comes into my life Huh. I love that perspective. That's that's really, really good. So during COVID shutdown, no industry, you have no industry. Are you like, well, that's it. I'm retired. Or are you just itching to get back? Or do you take oh, a vacation? That was, that was the scary part because, and I've thought about this for a long time. I don't have hobbies. My hobby is what I do. I I tried to garden <laughs> in the lockdown and I sprained my thumb. So clearly I'm not a gardener. Yeah, they're still in pain, you know, pulling out weeds. I got addicted to pulling out weeds. And I, my both of my thumbs are, you know, traumatized by it. Um, but it was, I went to the dark, dark side a lot during the lockdown and um, because I had no outlet. Uh, and it's not that I couldn't do what I was doing. I had nothing to replace it because all I've ever done is what I do. And so I was at a loss. Uh, I didn't know how to fill the time. I didn't know how to be creative on my own. I, 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 I had to have geographical escape. I went to visit a friend in Maine and on election night, my son and I flew to L.A., Mm -hmm. It was going to be his 30th birthday and I wanted to spend it. My, my husband, his father would not get on any form of transportation where other people were involved. Um, and I, 
it took a long time to to accept that I may never do this again. I never may may never be on stage again. May never be in front of a camera again. And then I realized, well, the time's flying today. Uh, so retirement didn't appear as scary the longer lockdown lockdown went on. And then I didn't know whether I wanted to return. Ooh. I really didn't. I had um, going back into rehearsal for company was it was uh, traumatizing. It was it, it, we were all traumatized from everything that happened. And then as this New York company looked at each other on the first day of rehearsal, we were all individually years caught in headlights and fearful that it all may fall apart again. There was no guarantee that we were going to continue rehearsing. There was no guarantee that we would get through technicals. There was no guarantee that we would get through previews. There was no, mm -hmm. there was no guarantee that we would get to where we are today. Um, and because of that, this company is uh, one of the tightest, most supportive, loving, caring companies I've ever worked with because we shared that experience together. It was, yeah. it was tough. It's, it's, uh, I've always said that, that casts become family, chosen family, because you're going through the, the, the long days of rehearsals and tech and, and put-ins and all these things. Like, the, it is a form of trauma. I've said this before many times, that it's, it's a form of trauma to go through this intense emotional situation with this group of people, and you get to know them very well, and you get to know them very quickly, and there's very few industries where you... You know, you, you you walk into a room and you're like, well, that person, according to page six, I'm going to have to kiss them in three days, right? So there, it's a weird industry with a weird form of life. And company specifically, this, this is, it's a show about chosen family. And it's a show about, uh, yeah, I, I think there's, there's something very metaphysical about, about the show and, and coming back, um, I guess before the shutdown versus after the shutdown, did any of the feelings about the show change in terms of like, oh, wow, we are back, we are here, and we are in real life sort of living this chosen family scenario? I don't think we had enough time beforehand to... Um, we were just getting to know each other. You know, you go through a rehearsal period, you mm -hmm. get to know your partner, you get to get to know the company to a certain degree, but then in a run of a play personalities are revealed you know backstage mm -hmm. they just are they're just revealed and that's when you form your family you know the repetitiveness of you know every night showing up doing the play hello the the, the wonderful just atmosphere backstage of a community of people that have chosen to be there we developed that in this um uh, go round with the show because we were shut down so quick we were in our ninth preview i think when we were shut mm -hmm. down we were just, we were still discovering our characters and discovering the life on stage and negotiating how we live backstage when we were shut down. And now it, you know, we were uh, tentative this go around. We were tentative, but now what? We've been open four and a half months and it's sort of like, okay, we're okay. It, it, it feels almost as if we never left and you know, individually, never left the stage, not yeah. this production, but the stage, yeah. the backstage life. It settled into a beautiful, absolutely beautiful environment. 
among the stage door people, the crew, the front of house, all of the actors, all of the understudies. There isn't any bitterness or attitude or there's just, I don't want to say great, um, even though that's, I'm sure, an underlying feeling. There's just support. There's just respect and support and love, love, a lot of love. You know, if somebody messes up or, or you know, there's just sort of like, oh, as opposed to you, fucking asshole. There's <laughs> 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 just, you know, we, we, and acceptance. That's the, I guess the word that I, I, I really need to put out there that these are, these will be life, this cast. Yeah, we will, we will all be lifelong buddies. Yeah. We went through something together, right? Right. Well, that, that's what that's what I guess I was getting at. Is it is like on top of the normal emotional bonding that happens, you've got all of the COVID situation and almost opening and not coming back, and then right before opening, Sondheim passes away, and yeah. it's the, it, like God, it's so much emotion wrapped up mm-hmm. in in all of this. And as somebody whose job it is day in and day out, eight shows a week, to emote like this, to not have that outlet all of a sudden, it feels, I, I suspect it's like this dam, just clog, you know, you, your your outlet just gets clogged up, right? Yeah. And you've got nothing to do. Yeah, yeah. It was, there were a lot of um, hard lessons or hard realizations. Um, but the other thing is, <laughs> I became more famous on Zoom than I was in my own life. <laughs> because there were so many play readings and you know events to support actors the actors fund um but it wasn't enough you know it wasn't enough it wasn't enough to just to fulfill that that void you gotta feel it it's different from watching something on zoom or on the internet versus like you said looking out at the audience because we're virtually we're watching you as an audience. It could be hundreds of thousands or millions of people and you can't see any of them because all you see is your cast. So when you're, when you're doing things digitally, virtually. So Um, yeah, I, I, oh gosh, I can't imagine that. And I guess going back to something we, we sort of touched on at the beginning was, um, you know, the, 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 the status that you are at now, whatever that may be, whoever perceives it in whatever they want, maintaining that success, uh, is it is it a lot of pressure for you emotionally? Um, because the name Patty Lapone conjures up greatness in people's oh. minds, yeah, right? Sure, when you're like, you. <laughs> no, I'm just being real. It's like, oh, that show's got Patty. It's going to be great. So is, is that a, a level of, of pressure that do you feel, or did, did I just jinx things? <laughs> How do you deal no, with, you like, know what? go ahead, go ahead. The, the pressure would be if I stunk on stage, there's the pressure. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I, you know, I do my work because I don't, I don't want to stink on stage and it's all about the work. For me, it's all about the rehearsal period. It's all about the discovery. It's all about figuring out how to communicate this to an audience. I, I, there's something about understanding as a stage actor that you need to command. By that, I mean you need to be confident in the story you're about to tell. 
And be, when you walk on that stage, you need to connect with the audience, however you do that, and go, relax, sit back, I've got this. I get nervous for actors on stage that are uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable with them, and that's all I'm looking at. And what I want to do is come on stage with all of my confidence and not be afraid and not be and, and and be able to look at the audience. I I look at the audience every single night because I want to know who I'm playing to. And I look at audience members in the eyes when I am thinking, you know, when 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 Joanne is thinking, I'll hook into somebody and I'll just look and look and they feel it. They they know that I'm looking at them, but I'm also sort of going as the character Joanne is thinking but I'm looking at you I want to make that connection with the audience there are actors that go on stage that forget they're doing it for the audience yeah and so they don't include the audience but I try to get my work done in the rehearsal room so that I can play on stage and if I can play on stage the audience can play the audience can have fun it's all about the audience for me and so my goal is to do my work completely so that they can relax. The audience can relax. And I have to say um, the audiences that have come to company, I don't know about any other show, but they have been incredibly respectful of each other, of each other. That's mm-hmm. why I get so angry. This, you know, we, we're all in this, this, uh, individual mindset because of social media and the telephones etc that we forget we are in a community of people yes yes and it has to be acknowledged that you are to your right to your left to the front and to the back you are next to someone alive so respect that respect them so it 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 angers me that 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 there are the you know out of what we're we're 1040 there might be one person that's in their own world with their phone on, why do you think you're exempt? Why do you think you're exempt? Why do you think, you know, we can get into politics now too. Why do you think you're exempt from the rest of the community? Mm-mm. When, mm. you know, it, it just, it drives me crazy. Civility, civility and respect. And, 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 and look at the, you, know, you could look at the Ukrainians and go, do you think Americans would do that? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I do not yeah. think Americans no. would unite. No, no, I don't think so. Nope. No, because no, we've, no. Had, we've had too much handed to us for, That's since, right. we, since we were kids. We haven't had to work we hard. Are, we were given in the universe the golden apple. Yeah. This country, the golden apple. And we are, we're trashing it. Yeah. Totally trashing it. It's embarrassing to be an American. We're going to take a short break. Stay tuned for more of the episode. We'll wrap up here in a second, but I want to quickly touch on the Andrew Lloyd Webber Memorial Pool. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing that's missing is the police drawing at the bottom of it. After we filled up the pool, we went, damn, I should, we should put the police drawing in the bottom. <laughs> so so uh, let, me, let me see if I can recap the summary here. So um, you were supposed to do a, what, oh, an, an Avita revival in... in on the West End, right? Me? Yeah, the whole like okay. Oh, maybe I'm telling the story wrong. That um, 
Glenn Close replaced you in a show on the West End, and then you and Andrew Lloyd Webber. There was no. like the internet talks about this feud forever. Oh, Glenn Close. Yeah, or Andrew yeah. Lloyd Webber. Andrew Lloyd Webber. Oh, because he fired me from Sunset Boulevard. Sunset Boulevard. That's what it was. Yeah. For Glenn, uh, yeah, right. So, so the story. Well, there. See, here's <laughs> the deal. That's really, and I, I don't think I'm the only actor that feels this. But when you do a dual production, you're setting up a competition, and it's as if you're looking at the two actresses that are playing the role and deciding which one should go to Broadway. You yeah. know, and that happened in another Andrew Lloyd Webber. Uh, somebody was in Toronto playing it, and somebody was playing it someplace else, and they chose a girl from Toronto. I had a contract to come to New York. I had an, I would not get on the plane without having the West End London, uh, New York um, um, contract. So, and, and Andrew has a tendency to blame everybody but himself um, <laughs> when shows fail. You know, shoot the messenger. Ain't my mm-hmm. fault. And um, yeah, he fired me. Unceremoniously fired me. I didn't get the reviews he wanted. Um, so he fired me. And there was a dual production before I got on the plane. They had cast Glenn Close. I went, I'm, it's, that is like nine months away. I'm not even, even in rehearsal for the West End production. And they've announced the LA company. It was so insulting. It was so disrespectful. And it was, so it started out, but it started out bad in negotiations. And we should have been aware of that. And we should have gone, okay, we're withdrawing. But for some reason, I thought, I got to do this. I don't know why. Um, it was a really horrible experience. And um, it wasn't a horrible experience on the West End when I was doing it. There, it was the cr- the creation of trying to get me off the stage so they wouldn't have to pay my contract. Mm. Right, and I and then uh, the the whole as as the tabloids have reported that I think settled in court for around a million dollars, which then built the pool, the memorial pool that you have or the pool in your in one of your at your house that you have now famously named the Andrew Lloyd Webber Memorial Pool. Sure was. <laughs> <laughs> oh i love that i love that are there any producers now on broadway i mean we've gone through so much transformation uh just in the last in the last couple of years alone because of this racial uh, uh, uh reckoning that's come about and of course like scott rudin has come he's been forced out of the business and all these sort of things uh but has he or well, is he manipulating behind the scenes I I have no proof either way, but I tend to agree <laughs> with you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. like, yeah. I mean, I'm happy. I'm just happy Beetlejuice has found a new home. That's we'll just me put it too. That I loved Beetlejuice. God, it was so good, right? It's um, so good. Um, and Sophia and Caruso blew my mm-hmm. mind. Mm, mm. And Alex Brightman, I don't uh, just anything Alex touches is amazing too. He's he's another one. Alex Brightman, Patty Lapone, those names right there. You guys need to do something together. I could play his grandmother. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Would you? uh, So my question was: Are there any producers now? Is there any creative team that that uh, you you like? No matter what the offer is, you're just like, I got to work with this person. I got to work with them because I know they're good. Team, I think Lynn Manuel's team. I would love to work with. Um, I'd love to work with um, Chris Harper again, um, David Stone. Um, I, I. it's interesting because I, I don't, I don't know who the producers are anymore. Really, mm. um, everything's so changed. I keep looking at Broadway, thinking, "Well, it's a combination of Las Vegas and Disneyland." <laughs> yeah, a bit. yeah, yeah. 
But but because of because of the American social media, you want to bring that back. That's what people expect. Because look at okay, well, they need to a, be reeducated. They need to a, be reeducated. I I resent producers or anybody that underestimates the audience's intelligence. Yes. Let them work for it. Don't give it to them. Let them work for it. I mean, I had to work for Power of the Dog, and I'm so glad I did. Do you know what I mean? Watching it, I was trying to figure out Power of the Dog forever, and my husband nailed it. Right at the end, my husband nailed what was happening. I'm going, oh my God, this is so much fun. I mean, it's so much fun to utilize your fucking brain. <laughs> Don't hand it to me. But that that's the that's the dichotomy we're living in right now because the 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 audience demographic that's going to get it that's going to think isn't on social media which is where the marketing budget is going now because you've got you've got the Disney's and you've got the Vegas type of shows right like that that are that are marketing to this younger generation because you have to have of course people coming in to replace the uh, people who are going out it, from an audience perspective and the younger generation, all they know is social media. All they know is is what's fitting on their on their digital screens. And I disagree with you. I think you're really? not giving the younger generation more credit a credit a credit that's due to them. I think they're really I mean, we've got a lot of young kids at the show. I mean, I look out at them every single night and go, You're here. You're here. You're here at company. You're here at this fifty year old chestnut. Uh, <laughs> you're here. Um and I really do think that we're underestimating the audience. I I think, and and why are we looking at statistics? Statistics. Just be creative and let the audience decide. Don't. I mean, the fact that we are le- looking at statistics and marketing as opposed to putting a piece of original theater out there, be it good or bad, let the audience decide. Let the audience engage that brain. It just drives me nuts that we have to look at the statistics. Well, you know what? Who said? Who said? Who statistics? It, 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 I, I was a, a judge on a on a Jonathan Larson, the musical theater grant. I was a judge, and there is so much creative musical, so many creative ideas out there in the form of musicals, playwrights, lyricists, composers. They will never see a production. Yeah. Because nobody will take a chance. And yet these blew my mind. Well, look at... They blew look, my mind. They were so creative. Just look at what you said about, you know, you want to work with Lynn's team, right? Like, uh, I give credit to, you know, Jill Furman, Jenny Steingart, these these producers uh, that took a chance on, on In the Heights, which, of course, led to so many other things in Hamilton, which just blew up his career and now he's paying it forward and bringing in all these other people who, and giving them chances and recognition. Right. Good for Lynn. And I, and I absolutely, I absolutely love when this stuff pays off because you can, there's a place, I guess, a time and a place for, for the, the, the surefire kind of thing. And, you know, one could argue, do we need a revival of music man right now? Mm, You know, that's another conversation, but there are, there are, uh, I guess, a lot of opportunities for us to to reinvent, like you were saying, reinvent how we are investing in youth and how we are reinvesting in taking chances on on unknown authors and unknown critics, yeah. for that matter. Right? Like, let's yeah. get more people of it's color. The, in, yeah, these kids are the same age as the kids you're talking about that are on social media. These kids are young that are writing this stuff. Yeah. So produce them. 
get them on stage, get them on stage. I, I'm telling you, I look out at the audience. I do see a lot of, a lot of young people in the audience. And I remember calling, um, Steve, <laughs> oh, when I was doing Sweeney and I went, you know, it was called the slasher musical and I'm going, Steve, there's just so many young kids in the audience. I'm just letting you know. And there were, there were tons of youth when we were doing hmm. John Doyle production of, of Sweeney. Um, same thing. Um, I'm trying to think of the other one that I did. And I looked out there and I'm like, there's so many kids. There's so many kids. I think even on social media, people do want a connection, even on social media, even if that you've grown up with that, you still want, even if you're not even, if it's just a subconscious thing, you want that you want a human connection. Oh, absolutely. They're buying the tickets. They're buying the tickets. They're buying the tickets. I, I, I unfortunately, everything is so expensive yeah. on Broadway that it's hard to produce them. So I don't know. I think there should be a tax levied on Disney and anybody else who comes to Broadway. <laughs> yeah. And open up a black box, open it, you know, off instead of the gift shop, you got to walk through outside of Lion King, make that a black box and produce a young playwright, a young composer and lyricist. Put it out there. That's what I think. And I also think there should be term limits on federal Supreme Court judges and Broadway musicals. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a bad idea. And oh, more more theaters too. I don't. God, the 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 logistics of getting a theater, getting it built, paying the rent. Keep, yeah. God, this, the, there's a systemic issue. There's so many systemic issues. Going back to you know being an American again, like New York City. God, I I agree with you that it is so hard, and you have people that that especially when you're finding investors for a project, you you can't just put something up. You have to find investors, and those investors basically are like, I know I'm going to lose this money because what is it? What's the statistic that like only twenty or thirty percent of productions recoup on Broadway or something? No, it I, a- I just met some guy who was investing in Paradise Square, and I went. Why? Not that has nothing to do with Paradise Square. I haven't seen it yet. I'm going to the opening night. But I said, "Why are you investing in Broadway? Do you need to lose money?" Yeah. If this guy wasn't even, you know, somebody from Broadway, he was just like a venture capitalist or something like that. He was some very rich guy that was in. I mean, what what draws you to you know to Broadway? Are, do you go to Broadway all the time? Do you love the theater? It didn't didn't look to me like you loved the right. theater, and it was like what, I, I mean, it, I really blurted. It blurt, came out of my mouth. I'm you know I'm an investor in Paradise Square. I, I just what I, I, I like. I said, please make this clear. It has nothing to do with Paradise Square. It's what is this guy doing <laughs> investing in Broadway? It's a losing proposition. Right. It's tough, but I mean, when it pays off, it pays off, and I think that's yeah. the gamble, right? It's high risk, high reward. So but uh, that's w- one play every decade. Yeah, I don't know. I I've in, I've invested. I've done some producing, and it's 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 for the love of it. It's for the love yes. of like you were saying. I, I want to give. I want to help to is in whatever way <laughs> I can bring new voices, bring new stories, bring something to to the stage, to the world, to and that's part of why I do this podcast. It's because I want to bring these stories to the world for for people who may not ever get a chance to see them, who may not ever get a chance to talk to you in person. Like we're bringing this in you and the industry we're we're increasing accessibility. That's what I'm all about and that's why I lay down some money every now and then. Excellent. Excellent. I just, you know, I 
it's time for us to, uh, you know, I guess I suppose there's a time to listen and a time to lead. And I think it's probably the time to lead yeah. the creative community. Yeah, we need to definitely. And it's time to uh, put those yeah. ideas out there and, yeah, and re-educate or educate an audience about what is happening in our uh, our world. Well, we don't need, probably, as a musical about COVID. But I would have said we don't need a musical about 9-11 either, but Come From Away is amazing. So, who knows? Yeah. Who knows what's being written right now? Uh, is there a role yeah. that you that you would, that you, like, you've done so much and been offered so much, and is there a role that you've, that you still want to, you still can do that you want to do that hasn't been offered yet? Um. Yeah, well, a ton of them went by. You know, in my youth, I wanted to do Ruth in Wonderful Town. I really wanted to play Ruth in, in Wonderful Town. In Wonderful Town, um, yeah. There's, you know, I don't think that way. I found that if I desired a role and didn't get it, it was incredibly disappointing. And you know, there were tears, and there was like, "What's wrong with me? Why do people hate me?" And instead of going after a role now, what's more exciting? and more surprising is what comes to me. Mm. Those are the roles I'm intended to play. I never thought I'd play Joanne. I never thought I'd play Nellie Lovett. And all of it, I think I'm going to die in the role of Joanne. <laughs> I, just <keep> playing, <laughs> I just keep playing Joanne. Um, so it, it, it's, it's just easier on my emotional health to not desire something and not go after something, but just wait. I mean, for instance, I'm, in an Ari Aster movie and I'm shocked that I got the part. I'm shocked that I got to work with him and I'm, how did that happen? How did that happen? It happened. And actually when I was on the zoom with Ari, I went, are you like a Broadway musical queen? <laughs> how do you know me? And you know how he knows me? He knows me from David Mamet's the anarchist. Wow. And I went, you know what? This is why you do the things you do because it leads you to the next and it leads you in the right direction, the direction you're supposed to go. And that to me is a fulfillment of a career. That's beautiful. That is beautiful. Yeah. I, I love that. And so I think that is a great place to wrap up. And I'm going to send you, I'm going to ask you my three standard closing questions that I ask everybody. The first one, just very simply, is what motivates you? I don't know. Jeez, getting up in the morning. <laughs> I don't know. What motivates me? In what respect? In what respect motivation? What, to go to the theater? To live? To to to, to do what you do. To to want to keep coming back. When you were saying, okay, so I'll quantify this. When, oh, when, what motivates when COVID, me is... Yeah, go ahead. What motivates me is the gift i have been given that's what motivates me um yeah i love that the gift i've been given and what advice would you give to your younger self and younger, pe younger people listening now starting out down a similar path well john houseman said it to my entire class discipline 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 <laughs> <laughs> don't go to juilliard in new york in the 70s <laughs> right before he threatened to cancel entire class um <laughs> yeah i would say study and discipline i would say that that you know i was not a good student i'm surprised i got as far as i did i really was not a good student um 
I would say discipline and to study, really study the craft if that's what you want to do. I love that. All right. And then last question. This is super hard. If you could only see one show for the rest of your life, but you can see it as many times as you want, what would you see? Peter Brooks, A Midsummer Night's Dream. Mm, that's the first response for that show. I like that. It's, it's incredible. It, stayed, it has stayed with me since I think it was 1976. Wow, wow. It was it's an extraordinary funny. production. Before the pandemic, the most answered, the most the show that I got the most with that answer was Sweeney, actually. Hmm. And, and But who's Sweeney? John Doyle Sweeney? Al Prince's Sweeney? Any production. People, people love it. People love it. And then it's after COVID, musical. after COVID, I don't think anybody said it. I don't know what it is about, you know, post COVID. Pe- <laughs> people want comedy. Slitting, people want comedy. It's, it's people's throats. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you are on Twitter at, at Patty Lapone. You have a website, pattylapone.net, which, oh, we didn't even get into your memoir. You have a book, which I think is amazing you wrote a book a few years ago so you could, there's links to the book um in on your website we'll have the link to the book in uh my show notes as well and i didn't even touch on the full depth of your bio so i'll link in the show notes to your full bio as well is there any anything else i missed are you online anywhere else you want to plug uh-uh. i'm barely online i can barely you know i didn't grow up with the computer my son is so frustrated with my husband and me as <laughs> he grew up with the computer. Now, and you know what? I think it's not healthy to be on social media so much. I think yeah. um, we do lose sight of um, what it, how we actually connect with human beings. Oh, absolutely. And it's just it, a mean, cruel place. There's been studies published that, that <coughs> if people are losing, kids are losing the ability to, to maintain conversation uh-huh. because yeah. they, they just look at their phones and that's where they yeah. get their dopamine release from likes and clicks and checks and hearts. Right. I felt sound like an old person right now. Get off my lawn. So <laughs> it, it, yeah, I totally, I totally, totally feel that and agree with you that like conversation is becoming a lost art form. Like you don't need to use an app to meet people, but yeah. people don't know any other way anymore. So anyway, get off your phones, go see some live theater because you know, Go see Company. That's a great show yeah. to go see right now. Oh, it's a laugh a minute. <laughs> I love it. Oh my God. I saw just a quick plug when you were out for, you were out, you got COVID. So you sound like you're better. I think I, I sucks that you have COVID. Love that Jen Samard got so much attention. Like she, she is phenomenally uh, amazing. And I, I guess this is just one last question is working with Chris Sieber and Jen Samard, two of my absolute favorite people in the people in the world. Like the three of you guys have to have so much fun. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. The whole company, <laughs> yeah. the whole company, the whole company is extraordinary. The company of company. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I know that, that you are selective in your interviews and, and, I could not think of a better guest for this 200th episode. Thank you so You're much. You're so sweet. I'm honored. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thank you all again for listening to episode 200. I still can't believe it of the theater podcast. Thank you to Patty Lapone. You were such a wonderful, wonderful guest. As always, find me online on Instagram and Twitter at theater underscore podcast. I'm on facebook.com slash official theater podcast. Leave a rating and a review wherever you're listening. Actually, you know what? I just started posting on TikTok. So find me on TikTok. I am the theater podcast on TikTok. How many times can I say TikTok? There you go. There's one more. (laughs) Everybody, please have a wonderful, lovely day. There are so many openings on Broadway in April. Please try to see a show if you can. Support the arts, support your podcast community. And now here's to another 200 episodes. Take a deep breath, make the world a little colorful. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.